Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2117 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. The message this week is week four on a five-week series titled, Becoming a Radical Disciple. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Okay, so they're heading toward the back. I do welcome everyone here again this morning. Thank you, Paula, for the lesson on accumulating too much stuff. Because it ties in with what we're going to talk about today. And this is our series on becoming a radical disciple. I better not drop the microphone. And today is our fourth in the series, and it's living a simple and balanced life. My purpose in this series is to consider eight characteristic traits of Christian discipleship that are often neglected but should be taken seriously. In the past three weeks, we've covered nonconformity, Christlikeness, and then last week we did maturity and creation care. And we want to go to over two more today. The first one is living a simple life. The fifth characteristic of a radical disciple, I would think, is simplicity, especially regarding money and possessions. And we as Christians, as citizens of God's kingdom, we claim to have received new life in Christ. What lifestyle, then, is appropriate for us? In particular, how are our lives to be distinguished from the lifestyles of those who don't make any Christian pro profession? How should our lifestyles reflect the challenges that we see in today's modern world? Much of the world is alienated toward God. Most people, especially in our affluent Western cultures, view the Earth's resources as if they owned them, and we don't. Because that's not the truth. For God created the world for the enjoyment of all people throughout the entire world. Much of the world doesn't acknowledge God. And we live in a country where it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We buy things to show off to people that we don't even care for that much. And as the old saying goes, we have to keep up with the Joneses. So our garages and our attics become overflowing with stuff that we rarely use. And as I mentioned before, then we have to spend more money on storage units, which tend to overflow also. And then we die. And we leave it all to our children and grandchildren to sort through. And they end up giving most of it away or throwing it out because it's no longer useful if it ever was. All of us should be shocked by the poverty of the millions within the world that are disrupted and disturbed by these injustices. We think of the country of Haiti, which is on the headlines this week, and the abject poverty that many people in Haiti have to live in. And yet, many emerging, emerging nations face the same. Yet most of the time, we feel somewhat helpless on how we can help effectively. Now, as Nancy mentioned, Samaritan's Purse are going into those areas. And that's one way to help, certainly. But are we hesitant to give up 
anything substantial to help those people? Now, there's nothing wrong, nor should we ever envy a, a person who is a believer who is a, has abundance resources by God's grace. It boils down to the familiar verse which we covered in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. As citizens of God's kingdom, we do have a higher calling. We who live in affluent nations or circumstances, including most of the Western cultures, need to accept the responsibility to develop a more simplistic lifestyle, to contribute more generously to those relief efforts, and even more importantly, to the evangelism efforts throughout the world. But we must meet the physical needs before we can ever approach people on a spiritual level. Of course, living a simple, a simple lifestyle requires prayerful wisdom, insight, and understanding. God does expect us to be prudent with what he's given us to manage. God permits a few people to be abundantly wealthy. But those treasures must be stored up in heaven so that they can be effectively used to help others in need. Since we are only managers of what God has given us, our purpose today is to consider our responsibility in becoming the radical disciples and how that's connected to living a simple and a balanced lifestyle. Of course, there's many advantages, and we don't often take time to think about this or slow down enough to realize the advantages of a simple life. So let's look at a couple aspects. First, when we do away with all the minutiae and all the busyness that we get involved with, we have time to slow down, to smell the roses or the coffee, and reflect on our lives. And secondly, it turns our focus onto other people who are in need both spiritually and financially. Simple living provides a relationship between evangelism, relief, and justice. It allows our perspective to change. A simple life will help us to reflect more and learn from God's, on God's word. We will then be better equipped to share with others personally, or if we don't have the opportunity to personally share with others, to do it through biblically-based organizations. If we free ourselves from the financial obligations which strangle us, so often we buy things that become a burden to us because then we have to either maintain them or we have to pay for them over time, and it strangles us because it doesn't give us the opportunity to make choices. Many of God's imagers around the world have a limited access to biblical resources and who live in, in oppressed conditions. These people are craving the good news of salvation, but more than that, before we can meet them with their good news of salvation, we need to meet them with the basic human necessities of life. So here are some biblical practical examples to live more simply, which will help us to have a biblical worldview and significantly impact our world. We must understand that God is the creator of all things, and therefore we should celebrate the goodness of his creation. He has provided us as caretakers of his creation. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Paul writes, Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but re receive it with thanks. So it's fine to have things if we keep it in proper perspective. Sometimes in our finite minds, we don't understand how God blesses some people abundantly, but maybe not ourselves. But if we compare our lives in America to the lives in Haiti, our finite minds can't understand that discrepancy either. It's really not important on how much you have in the material resources, because regardless of the amount of the material resources God has provided to us, we need to learn to be content with whatever God has provided for us. The billionaire John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? To which he replied, just a little bit more than you have. And I think that applies to most of our lives. The more we have, the more we want just a little bit more. And Paul gave the biblical answer to what great wealth really is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when he wrote, Yet true godliness with contentment itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't, can't take anything with us when we leave it. And get this point. Wealth is not much, how much you have, but how willing you are to share it with others. If God does allow you to prosper financially, and you do have material resources, that's great. But we need to heed what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, when he said, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud or to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. True life is sharing with others what God has richly blessed us with. And these verses sound an awful lot like what Jesus wrote in the Sermon on the Mount. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And as citizens of God's kingdom, God intends the earth's resources to be taken care of in our own individual worlds, but for the benefit of all throughout the entire world by all nations. And why don't want to get political at all because that's not what the church is for. I think we need to de denounce illegitimate wars that are used to exploit the resources of other nations. And as much as we like to think we don't do that, I think it's been done at times. We need to be against the exploitation of the various countries, those that don't take care of their environment properly. But even in our own lives, wasteful or hoarding mindsets shouldn't be part of our lives as believers. And just like wealth is not distributed evenly, neither is poverty. God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, one thing, one thing that set them apart from other nations was the mandates that God gave to how you treat the poor. God was very concerned with the poor and had specific laws saying, 
leave the edges of the field unharvested so that those who are poor can reap that. Now, I'm not big on huge government programs, but the government does step in and takes, helps to take care of those who are truly in need. And we need to understand this. We can have our opinions about it, but we need to understand that as a nation, we need to be willing to help take care of those that are in need also. For most people living in poverty, it's an involuntary poverty. I realize some people choose to, to be in poverty, whether they realize it or not, but most of it's involuntary. And poverty is an offense to the goodness of God. Poverty in the Bible was related to powerlessness. If you were in poverty, you had no power to defend yourself. And some of that has not changed, even in our country. For the poor cannot protect themselves as well as the rich. Even today, God calls the rulers of the nations to use their powers to defend the poor, not to exploit them. Therefore, the church must stand with God against any injustices against the poor. We need to suffer with them, and we need to call on our government through our elected officials and our church leaders to fulfill the promises that God gave to us to help those that are, are in need. The kingdom of God is a free gift that's offered to all people. But the excellent news is those who are, live in injustice and poverty, the kingdom of God brings the most radical changes. So it's most important in their lives. Jesus calls us as followers to free ourselves from the seductive hand of riches and live a life of sacrificial generosity. I see a lot of that in our church at Putnam here. And I'm certainly not pointing fingers at anyone here today because I see such a, a generous spirit among us. And I commend each one of you for having that spirit. But we should re resolve to get to know those who are poor and oppressed, to learn the issues of injustice for them and to seek and help them to relieve their suffering. And that includes having them in our regular prayers. Christ calls us to be salt and light, to hinder the social decay of the world, and to illuminate its darkness. But the, salt, or the light must shine, and the salt must retain its saltiness. It means that church needs to be distinct from the world in its values, its standards, and its lifestyle. It presents the world with the radically attractive alternatives and the significant influence that we can have in Christ. Jesus, our Lord, calls us to holiness, humility, simplicity, and contentment. He also promises us rest if we'll take the time just to sit and reflect on his goodness to us. Unfortunately, many times I see, even within the church, that we allow the desires of having material resources to disturb our inner tranquility. Therefore, it's a constant renewal of Christ's peace in our hearts with the emphasis on living a simple life which will help us to keep in focus on what our vocation is here on earth. And while I'm not condemning the megachurches of today who build these huge buildings, nor the elegant edifices of the churches of the past, I personally have a difficult time reconciling investing millions of dollars into infrastructure when there's so much need around the world. Now, I enjoy going to some of those churches because it's, it's an environment that's different. 
But how much money is invested in edifices here on earth that could be distributed to those who truly need it? Simple Christian living would generally release us from the considerable resources if we could release those finances to personnel and evangelism and development around the world. So while I would say that most of us here, if not all of us, live a fairly simplistic life here in the mid-Ohio Valley, in Marietta, Ohio, we tend to live a simple life compared to other parts of our country. I think it's just a reminder today to recommit ourselves to that simplicity, to use the resources God has given us to help those that truly are in need, and maybe to sacrifice once in a while on our own part in order to help them, which takes us to living a balanced life. Today is a simple and balanced life, so it takes us to the balanced life. And what do I mean by a balanced life? And I doubt there's any New Testament text which better describes it than what I read during the opening. It gives a balanced and varied account of what it means to be a radical disciple. And, and Peter breaks it down into six metaphors that he describes living a balanced life. And we learn from the past that what we learn from the past is that we can do very little to correct it or change the past, but we can use the lessons to help us in the future. So today we need to begin to move forward, as explained in verses 1 through 3 of that passage, which says, so get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies must crave the pure spiritual milk that will you will grow to the full experience of your salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have a, had a taste of the Lord's kindness. And I want to use my granny and gramps bag again today. And we talked about milk last week compared to steak. What children have compared to what adults should have as a diet. And Paul had to, to exhort the Corinthians that they should be solid food. But today I want to compare the richness of God's word with heavy whipping cream. And nothing's much more delicious than whipping cream when you whip it up into a tasty flavorable. It just has substance to it compared to something like unsweetened almond milk, which when you boil it right down is sort of watery and just white. And I think that's how they can get away with calling it milk. And we've switched to almond milk primarily in our diets, but there's nothing that compares that to this rich whipping cream. And Peter in this passage tells us that we're to crave that. If you've ever, you know a newborn baby when it's hungry, it just cries out for mother's milk, for that rich, nutrient-filled substance that they need to grow. And in this first metaphor, Peter tells us about proper nutrition. As a child's healthy growth is based on a good diet, we as believers need a daily disciplined feeding from God's word for our crucial spiritual growth. We need that whipping cream. We need something of substance from God's word in order to fill us and help us to grow in Christ. That's what he's talking about here in this passage.
There's a need for great discipline in our Christian life also. For example, if we want to be physically strong and healthy, we have to eat right and we have to exercise. And if we choose to become spiritually strong, we need to drink deeply from that rich whipping cream of God's word. Our desire is to become strong in our faith, to be radical disciples so that we can help others become radical disciples. Then the second metaphor which Peter develops is that of living stones. In verses 4 and 5, he says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He, has rejected, he was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Jews had a temp, physical temple they went to. In AD 70, that temple was destroyed. And within God's plan, it was destroyed because it was no longer needed. Christ fulfilled everything that temple represented. And instead, he makes us as believers his temple. Each one of us joined together becomes his temple. Peter turns from the world of biology, from birth and growth, to the world of architecture of stones and building. Since some of the stones in the spiritual temple are, pe are people, or since the stones are, Peter has called us living stones. And what's the implication of this? It means that we belong to each other. We need each other. If babies need milk to grow, we need, as bricks, to be stuck together, such as this would ex example. These are stuck together with mortar. And these bricks cling to each other because they have the mortar of love and fellowship between each brick. And this is a representation of a church. A single brick cannot stand on its own. It can never be built into a building unless it has that mortar. It can't be suspended in midair because if it is, it'll drop. But we as living stones, the mortar of love and fellowship binds us together as believers into a spiritual temple. That temple is what God uses today for worship. He no longer needs the temple of the Old Testament, but we are his temple represented in God's kingdom. We need to recapture the vision of the church as a place of fellowship, as living stones in the building of God. Moreover, we need a better quality mortar we have good fellowship here at Putnam, and I just praise God for that. We have love here for each other. But the church worldwide needs that love. We need to be a representative of that love to each other so we can build a worldwide temple. And then Peter moves on to the third metaphor when he describes us, he likens us to holy priest with the duty to worship God. And the metaphor might come as a surprise to others. You might not think of yourself as a priest. But in verse 5, he says, you are a holy priest. And Peter drills down even more in verse 9 when he says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So what is our role as priest? It's to tell others of God's kingdom. 
Now, the priest in the Old Testament, and even in Jesus' time, you could tell them from a mile away because they wore their priestly garb and they strutted down the streets of Jerusalem to the temple. And as they entered the temple, they had an advantage over the common people. So he had the temple, and you could see them. But now, we are priests. So what does that mean? The Israelites' priests enjoyed two advantages that the rest of the people didn't. The first one, they enjoyed access to God. They were the only ones who were allowed to go into the inner part of the temple. The temple, inner, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. In the first, the high priest could only enter the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement. Access to God was restricted to the lay people or the commoners of the day. They weren't allowed in the holy place or the holy of holies. The second privilege which the priest enjoyed was offering sacrifices to God. And again, the common folk could bring their sacrifices, but they were, only the priests were allowed to kill the sacrifices, perform the rituals, and sprinkle the blood. But now through Jesus Christ, this distinction between priest and common people has been abolished. We all share in the privilege that was previously limited only to the priest for we are all priests now. The whole church is a priesthood. Now we have leaders in the church in forms of pastors or elders, but that doesn't make them priests in any form or fashion. They're not superior in our access to God, in our duty to God. And we have to understand that the priesthood is all believers. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace as we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Through Christ, all of us offer God spiritual sacrifices of worship. So we can both enter before God's presence and we can bring our spiritual sacrifices. We are priests. And then Peter goes on to develop the fourth metaphor when he says, but you are not like that, for you are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Here the Apostle Paul likens the church to the nation of people. The nation of Israel was set apart as a special nation. When Christ died, was crucified, buried, and resurrected, that barrier was broken. No longer is it the nation of Israel, God's holy people, but it's everybody who's part of God's kingdom, all believers, are his chosen people. But why did God choose Israel, and why did God choose us? Well, the answer is not favoritism, but it is to be his witness. We do not have a monopoly on the gospel. God doesn't say, you are special because you are wonderful or you're spiritual. He says, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Peter continues on, and he says, Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Peter introduces then from that chosen people, not because we're special, but because God's love for us, and he introduces the fifth metaphor, which is dual citizenship. 
In verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against the very souls. Although the Jews were considered citizens of Rome and Israel, the Greek word temporary residents and foreigners indicated a people who had no rights and no home. And the Jews of the first centuries were citizens of two countries, Israel and Rome. And we today are citizens of the United States, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom. The worldwide kingdom is not restricted to a geographic country. And then Paul moved, or Peter moves on to a sixth metaphor, which shows disciples as conscientious servants of God. In verses 12 through 17, Peter urges his readers to be careful to live properly among the, um, your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. If it's God's will that your honorable life should silence the ignorance people who make foolish accusations against you, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Respect the king. We have to understand that although our primary citizenship today as believers is part of God's kingdom, we do have a dual citizenship and we are responsible to the citizenship of the United States for, for all of us because we have earthly duties. As citizens of the U.S., we are to be conscientious citizens. We're to submit to authorities as long as it doesn't violate the clear direction of God's word. We're to silence criticism by doing good and we're supposed to have respect for everyone. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we still belong first to heaven. That's our priority. We are aliens and exiles here on earth. Although we're part of the United States, just as the Jews were part of Rome, they were exiles and aliens on earth. We are pilgrims traveling to our home with God. The fact is that our heavenly citizenship profoundly challenges our attitude. It challenges our attitude to money and possessions. As we see our life as a pilgrimage from a time of nakedness when we're born to a time of nakedness when we die, to times of tragedy and suffering. But we see them in the perspective of, the, of eternity and especially our attitude toward temptation and sin. So to summarize living a balanced life, it should now be clear. We have followed through Peter's six metaphors that make a portrait that paints us as a radical disciple. And here they are again, just as a snapshot. As newborn babies, we're called to grow. As living stones, we're called to fellowship. As holy priests, we're called to worship. As God's people, we're called to witness for him. As aliens and strangers, we're called to holiness so those around us will see something different in our lives that they don't see in their own. And as servants of God, we're called to citizenship to whatever country we are part of. But we have a beautiful, comprehensive, balanced portrait which dovetails into a simple life and balanced life. We are called to individual discipleship 
to tell others, but we're also called to corporate fellowship. We're called to worship God, but we're also called to work in this world. We're called to a pilgrimage, but we still have a citizenship that we're responsible to here on earth. Those are two more character traits of becoming a radical disciple, living a simple life and living a balanced life. And during our series in these first four weeks, I've encouraged you to read through Romans chapter 12, verse 2 each week. And once again, it says, don't copy the customs and behaviors of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Next week, we'll consider the character traits of dependence and death. Couple that we need to consider as we become radical disciples on our journey here on earth, as we help to establish God's kingdom here on earth as a spiritual temple for God. So let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this time in your word where we can learn to live a simple and balanced life, a life that's willing to give to others and a life that's willing to tell others. Help us to do well in both areas, Father. And may you receive the honor, the glory for everything that we do that might please you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.